0: of June 4th, 2023, this is Showbiz Sandbox, Episode 619, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los
1: Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. Strike, 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 and outside the Apple Store of Birmingham, Alabama, I'm Michael Giltz.
0: I don't know why you're outside the Apple Store, but if you're striking, you must be a writer, because of course the DGA looks like they're striking a deal with the producers in the AMPTP and the networks and the studios and, a, and right. everybody.
1: Well, of course, I am a writer, uh, sort of, unpaid, I guess, and I am showing solidarity with the Writers Guild. uh, They're not picketing Apple stores. They are uh, protesting and handing out flyers to people, though I must admit, I'm also here to get in line for the Vision Pro, the awesome new Apple VR headset, which they have just announced. Isn't it an AR headset, not a VR headset? Oh, I'm sorry. Well, I'm too dumb to know the difference. It's just a thing you put on your head and it's exciting. Well, you, It's their first new toy in a decade.
0: Well, if you're standing in line for the new AR, VR headset or whatever it is, you know, you say you're a writer. I'm a reader and I am still trying to make my way through Tim Alberta's Profile of C- the CEO of CNN, Chris Licht. This thing is 15,000 words. I cannot believe they
1: let him. What is what is this, the New Yorker? <laughs> I mean, for Pete. He's, he spent a year with him, a year uh, before writing the provo. That is total old school New Yorker stuff. I like the Atlantic, but I don't subscribe to them right now, so I don't have access to that story. So um, it is the talk of the town, that's for sure. Uh, it doesn't. He doesn't look good in it. Uh, But will people be talking about what we're talking about? I want to know what's on the show this week.
0: Well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we're playing Let's Make a Deal. The Directors Guild of America have a tentative agreement, as I just mentioned, with studios and streamers. But the WGA says, hey, you know what? We're standing firm and have many unique issues to tackle. So don't expect their strike to end anytime soon. Up next... Perhaps the actors, but first we've got Jonathan Handel to explain it all for us. He really should know the entertainment and tech lawyer is contributing is a contributing editor over at uh, or at least a contributing writer uh, at the website Puck, where he covers the business and he wrote the book on striking in Hollywood. It's called. Hollywood on strike on Inside Baseball, we'll cover the showdown between Tom Cruise and director Christopher Nolan over IMAX Screams this summer. Spoiler alert, score one for the auteurs. Of course, <laughs> during Big Deal or Big Wolf, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in on last week's box office. And my spidey senses are tingling. I think he's going to talk about Spider-Man.
1: Well done. The number one movie around the world is Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse. Why don't you say it?
0: Spider-Man across the Spider-Verse. Now, if you're wondering why why I say it that way, you have to go all the way back to when Spider-Man was on Broadway and it was Spider-Man, turn off the dark. (laughs)
1: turn off the dark yes or as they used to say turn on the light anyway spider-man across the spider verse certainly turned on the lights at the box office nice segue michael 209 million dollar worldwide opening it cost about 100 million dollars to make this is a big hit right out of the box tremendous reviews tremendous uh box office i saw it over the weekend i thought it was great I thought the first one was really good, too. If you like that one, you'll certainly like this one. The second in the animated uh, movies about Miles Morales. Uh, I thought the first one was very, very cool visually, but I felt they were sort of showing off. It felt more either I got more used to it or they were really doing it with purpose when they did some very, very expressive and out there animation uh, there's a scene where Gwen, a spider woman, uh, and her dad are talking, and it's just floating backgrounds. And I mean, just, it, it, this is a really bold film visually. It's really cool. It's really well done. And it's really not over. It is a cliffhanger, like The Empire Strikes Back. It absolutely stops in the middle of the action, even though it's two hours and 20 minutes long. But I loved it. It's one of the best films of the year. It will. Definitely be up for Best Animated Film. We'll probably win that. It should be up for Best Picture.
0: You know what I don't understand is this film was written by uh, Phil Lord and Chris Miller or Chris Miller and Phil Lord. I can't remember. Lord and Miller. And it was produced by Lord and Miller. But it actually had directors. And everything you see and everything you read about this uh, and everything
1: I hear about Joaquin Dos Santos, Ken Powers, and Justin K. Thompson. They also uh, the the guys who wrote it also wrote it with Dave Callaham. It wasn't just Lord and Miller, right?
0: But I, I guess I'm looking at it and like they're there in the mixing suite, you know, picking different sounds for the watches. And I'm like, wait, isn't that the director's job? Like, what does the director do if you guys are getting all the 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 headlines here?
1: Well, they're the big names and the big face across the uh, the franchise, the, a lot of different animated movies. But these directors will definitely get their props. Uh, and be able to get more work and do it. They did a great job. They will be the ones clutching the statues if they win Best Director. So, you know, uh, I'm not going to wait for them. But yes, the producers, Lord Miller, the co-screenwriters and producers, Lord Miller are definitely uh, among the most recognizable names uh, in movies right now. So uh, yes, they are reaping some of the rewards. But I'm glad you pointed out that it was directed by Joaquin Dos Santos, Kemp Powers, and Justin K. Thompson. I think Lord and Miller also did not want to be the sole white guy director on a movie about a half uh, Puerto Rican, half uh, black kid growing up in New York City. So, you know, there's that. But it was very well directed, very well made, uh, a big success story. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, $209 million worldwide. It doubled its budget on its opening week. However, here in North America, some people touted its amazing numbers, the great numbers on Thursday. And then they said, oh, I had a great opening day of $51 million in North America. Including
0: $17 million on Thursday.
1: Right. No, it's, it's not an opening day when you're including two days grosses. I'm sorry. They just need to stop saying that. It's not a one day gross. It's not an opening day gross. Now, opening weekend does not start on Wednesday. <laughs> yeah you know, so no you just can't do it so you know just grow up and admit that Friday is Friday Thursday is Thursday They made 17 million on Thursday and 34 million dollars on Friday Now what it's I, great numbers so there's no need to blow them up
0: Now what I will say is at least they're being consistent and always throwing Thursday in so when they say opening day that that Thursday number is always there now but
1: they're not that's not consistent because historically there was no Thursday True. so you're distort when you say it's the biggest opening day you're wrong <laughs> unless that Friday grows more And again, opening day is Thursday. So moving on. The Little Mermaid made another $164 million this week. That's what it made last week. It made it again this week. So double that number and you're at $328 million worldwide. It needs to double that again to get close to $750 million, which is what it needs to be a big success story. It's probably not going to make it. Uh, Another movie that's looking a little tough to get there is Fast X. $96 million this week. It passed the $600 million mark, but it cost over $340 million to make. It's not going to get to $1 billion. More, You're saying uh, it's not uh, ga- going to
0: speed its way to
1: 1 billion dollars? Get it? Cuz it's exactly a movie. That's exactly what I That's that's exactly what I'm saying. On the other hand, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, just like Spider-Man, that's a big success story. 49 million dollars this week, 780 million dollars worldwide. It's tripled its reported budget and it still has number 2 in sights. So if it can make another 90 million dollars, it will be the highest-grossing Guardians film so far. And what I would say is,
0: even if it's not You pretty much made your money back, even if you break even on this film theatrically. You now have it for Disney+. Plus. You now have all the characters
1: for your theme parks. So guess what? Rental, streaming, uh, DVDs, all that sort of stuff. People still buy DVDs because, you know, they might kick that movie off your service at any moment. (laughs) So That's true. Not not such a crazy thing to do. Over in Korea, we have a big hit. It's the third film in a franchise. It's the roundup, No Way Out. It opened to $34 million. The original film in this franchise made $52 million. The second one made $100 million. So they doubled the gross of the first one. This one looks set to hopefully match the second. Uh, Below that is the Super Mario Brothers movie, which is looking very smart for opening up in spring when no other big movies were around. The summer season is very crowded and Super Mario Brothers made all its money all on its own. It made $23 million this week. It's at $1.3 billion worldwide. It's now in the top 20 all-time grossing movies. Number 19 all-time. Not the second in animation or fifth in an animated movie or number one for a movie based on a video game. It's in the top 20 of the highest grossing movies worldwide of all time. The Boogeyman is a Stephen King film. It's based on a Stephen King short story from the 1970s, a scary story. Pretty darn good reviews. It opened to $20 million, which I thought was going to be good, but it cost $35 million to make according to Variety. I have no idea why this movie with this cast and this profile would cost $35 million, but it did. Not exactly a uh, penny-pinching horror flick, so it needs to get to $100 million. That would mean a five times multiple, hey... Uh, horror films, do they travel as well overseas as, uh, I know comedies don't always travel well, but horror films are
0: money in the bank, money overseas. overseas, Yes.
1: Okay. Good to know. So that they could do that worldwide. So we'll be keeping our eyes on that one. I know Hayao Miyazaki is money in the bank, the famed Japanese filmmaker. He has what may well be his final film coming out in like two weeks and they have decided studio Ghibli, they're doing nothing. They're not doing commercials. They're not releasing a trailer. They are not releasing a summary of what the movie is about. They are not telling you the voice cast. They're just saying, the movie opens up on this day. Have a pure emotional experience by seeing what may well be the final Miyazaki film in Japan. I'm like, that's awesome. There was a poster, an enigmatic poster, and that is it. That is the only promotion, the only info on the movie that being done for Hayao Miyazaki. That's very cool. And that that means people will get the experience we get when we go to a film festival. We sit down. Half the times, we don't know if the movie's a comedy, a drama, a musical, a horror film. You don't know. You just get to sit there and have a pure theatrical experience. Maybe you know the director and the star, and that's about it. So that'll be a very cool thing. We're no doubt that Miyazaki would do well in Japan. And just like Disney... They release his movies every few years in theaters all over the world. Castle in the Sky has just opened up again in China, and it made about $12 million. So it had a big opening in China, much better than The Little Mermaid. Uh, back to more another animated film, Dora Ayman, Nobita Sky Utopia. This is the 42nd film in the Doraemon franchise. It's a Japanese animated film. It made another $11 million this week, thanks to opening up in China, just like Castle in the Sky. Uh, Also in China is Godspeed. This family road comedy made another $8 million. It's at $155 million worldwide. Uh, Now, I don't know what that movie cost. If you know the budget, tell us
0: yes you can write to us dirt at showbiz sandbox.com. that's d-i-r-t at showbiz sandbox.com. you can also call and leave us a voicemail the number to call is 888-567-SAND that's 888-567-7263 and I'd like to thank the company that keeps calling us to remind us that our uh, car insurance is uh, expiring our <laughs> car warranty is expiring that that really helps out uh, we're also on Twitter we're at showbiz is our handle and we're on Facebook facebook.com slash sandbox please somebody write to us somebody call us and let me know when i can see that new miyazaki film
1: well if you fly to japan you can see it in a few weeks but right now you get drama right here in america moving to social justice uh the actor danny masterson best known for his role on the hit sitcom that 70s show is a rapist he's been convicted of two counts of rape and now faces up to 30 years in prison Uh, So some justice is happening. It's a sad day when that happens, but it is a good day for the people who see justice done, but it's sort of a depressing news. There's gotta be better news somewhere in Hollywood.
0: Well, the bigger story in Hollywood these days uh, is the director's guild of America, which reached a deal with the studios and producers and streamers. And if you laid your money on a strike in the office pool, you don't know your history. The DGA has only struck once in 87 years. And even that, You know, it was like only for a few minutes. I think it was like six minutes. Some people say it was 12 minutes. There's a big debate about that. To help us understand what it all means, our guest today is one person who does know the history of Hollywood and strikes, and that's Jonathan Handel. He literally wrote the book on strikes in Hollywood. Literally. Uh, He's an entertainment and technology attorney, uh, both. uh, And and, uh, by the way, also uh, the author of Hollywood on strike. That was the book I was referencing. And of course, a contributor to Puck, uh, a detailed analysis of the last time the writer's Guild of America is in that book, uh, Hollywood on Strike. Jonathan, thank you for joining us.
2: Pleasure to be with you. Thanks, Brian. Now,
1: if you subscribe to his Substack newsletter, as I did, and we'll have links in the show notes, you will have learned the DGA struck a deal even before the trades announced it. I believe it was 18 minutes earlier before they got their first breaking news alert out. I had it from Jonathan Handel so you can explore his personal website at jhandel.com we'll have links to all that stuff in the show notes Uh, we are pulling a lot of stuff from the Hollywood Reporter where Jonathan contributed for more than a decade like 1400 pieces and we've got a breakdown and that was reported on by Katie Kilkenny and Leslie Goldberg Uh, so that's all going to be coming up in just a second but my first question Jonathan is why has the DJ only struck once in 87 years do the studios subscribe to the auteur theory and think they just can't mess with the director
2: there is some aspect of that and um uh it it, it really is uh, it quite well striking might be the word um <laughs> <laughs> dare i dare i say uh, that strike was for between five and 15 minutes on the west coast and three hours and five minutes or three hours and 15 minutes on the east coast because of the time zone difference <laughs> it uh, uh and i think that was back in um uh, 87 87. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. 87
2: yeah 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 um, uh, whereas the, uh, the writers and the actors, uh, have struck, um, uh, at various times, uh, the writers most recently, of course, 15 years ago, 2007 and 08, um, that strike ended in part because the DGA did a deal that served as a template for the writers. Uh, that's less likely to happen this time because the writers have issues that are not addressed by the DGA deal. Most notably, uh as we've talked about before mini rooms um sh- smaller writers rooms on uh series on shorter shorter series 10 episodes a season and um so fewer writers are hired the duration of their employment is less they're hired for less uh, for less uh, fewer number of weeks and the writers guild has pushed back very strongly on that and the studios have pushback against the pushback.
1: And the actors, of course, are, one of their big concerns is self-taping. They want to get paid for it. It's in their contract that they should be paid when they do self-taping. They get a half day's wage, um, the half, whatever the half of the daily minimum is. So that's interesting. But you pointed out one key factor because the first reaction from the writers and the actors was, that's great either a little snarky, like, well, we're glad our strike helped you get a deal, or look, their deal doesn't cover a lot of things we're concerned about. But you say one other key factor why you shouldn't expect them to, to make a deal quickly is because SAG-AFTRA is in an election year. Why does that matter?
2: Well, SAG-AFTRA is in an election year. And and to complete the backstory, SAG-AFTRA will be reporting uh, today, today after uh, 6 p.m. or so on the results of their strike authorization vote. 99%. Which, well, I don't think it'll be quite that high, but it'll be in the, somewhere between the high 80s and, and low to mid 90s is what I'm guessing. There certainly is a lot of solidarity. There's no organized campaign. There was no organized campaign against the strike authorization vote. That, if uh, assuming it passes, would give them the, the leadership, the authority to call a strike uh, after the contract expires June 30th if they haven't reached a deal. Uh, in the next three weeks, they start negotiating on Wednesday. Um, so the the way the election uh, factors into it is that the dominant faction uh, in SAG, which is called Unite for Strength, would not want to appear uh, weak by making too much of a compromise to the studios, and then being vulnerable uh, in the uh, in the election campaigns to uh, to push back from membership first, which is a more uh, strike-oriented faction, but the the fact of the matter is, both factions this time around are talking strike, and the national board voted unanimously to recommend the strike authorization vote, and that's a national board that usually can't agree on the day of the week. <laughs> it's Monday, by the way.
1: We're recording on a Monday.
2: We are recording on a Monday. Uh, we'll we'll submit that for uh, a vote as well. Uh, so you know, you 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 have a posture here where there really is. Uh, at least on the part of the writers and um, the actors, a very strong desire to take a stand and to push back against, you know, if you really want to, you know, look at the forest uh, for the trees, um, uh, you know, income and wealth inequality, and the fact that companies are run, large companies are run, primarily for the benefit of top-level executives and shareholders. And all the other stakeholders really are secondary, workers are replaceable or disposable. Consumers are manipulable. Communities and and regulators can be bought off or compromised. And workers Uh, aren't
1: even workers, of course. They are contractors, people who work for a particular job, and then they're gone. Then they come back and work for the next job, and then they're gone. In fact, the front page of the LA Times was, how much do top Hollywood execs make? Their pay surged to $1.4 billion during the pandemic, when you think things might be a little harder and they might tighten their belts. And they went through the pay for top execs like David Zaslav and Ari Emanuel of Endeavor, how much they've made over the last five years. We're looking at $500 million, $350 million. The poor kid on the block was Ted Sarando, who said $200 million. So they, they they, really, you know, they went through it. And I wonder, is that more just good PR and types of the The Writers Guild? They sent a letter to stockholders at Netflix and Comcast targeting CEO pay, saying, hey, just like last year, make sure you don't support the grotesque salaries they're paying themselves. And obviously, if they paid the CEO a buck and didn't give him any compensation, that money would soon run out. But it is symbolically important at the very least. You can't say, oh, my God, we're so broke and pay your top guy five hundred million dollars over the last five years.
2: Well, and you, you make a good point. And, and and Ted Sarandos, I understand, has uh, down tiered to the ad supported Netflix tier, uh, <laughs> g- given, given his uh, somewhat lower compensation. Uh, you know, it, it is at at one level it's 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 you know it's pr and what ultimately matters is how much solidarity the writers guild is able to maintain uh as you know as time grinds on and uh but you know the membership is energized i think by seeing the leadership uh you know point out the disparities in uh in pay that you're talking about um Netflix. Uh, the Netflix shareholders did not approve the uh, the uh, lucrative pay package, but that vote is only advisory. So it's really, you know, the board does what it wants, and boards of directors of large companies are, you know, usually compliant and complicit with, uh, you know, with the top executives. There's really a scratch my back, scratch your back. Uh, they all sit
1: on each other's boards. That's, that's, a whole, right. that's a whole other problem. But at least the directors did sign a deal. Let's talk about what they did. Sperling, what did the directors gain in residuals and internationally?
0: Well, in, in residuals, I, I would say they, they gained global SVOD residuals, if I'm not mistaken. And I guess we're still waiting... Truly to hear uh, the, the amount th- this amounts to seventy six percent a seventy six percent increase for the biggest services like Netflix. what does that mean, Jonathan when they say a seventy six percent increase is that seventy six percent from zero, which of course would be
2: <laughs> like you're finally getting something no uh they there, there already were uh, 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 foreign residuals for streaming uh, but they've gained an improvement in them now that seventy six percent figure is looking at the first three years of residuals for a for product on the larger systems like Netflix. So it's a cherry-picked figure. We don't know what the the actual formula, you know, new formula is and what the gains are and how that plays out on other on other services. The um the DGA board votes tomorrow night, Tuesday night, uh and at that point, uh, the details of the deal are are supposed to be released. What we have right now is simply basically bullet points. But right, but what they um what they
1: gained and what they trumpeted was the fact that they are now basing uh, uh, residuals worldwide on worldwide subscriber totals. That was the big change. And of course, international subscriptions count for less because they have a lower subscription rate. Uh, but we wonder is that an achievement or a cave? For example, they didn't gain anything in domestic residuals, and they still haven't gained any compensation for having a hit. Doesn't matter if you create the biggest hit show in the world, you're not getting a penny extra.
2: That's correct, and and that is one reason why when the DGA says that this is a historic deal, I, I have to hover a bit of a question mark over that because, um, yeah, they 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 got something important, you know, improvement in uh, international and foreign residuals, but you you point out correctly what they did not gain. Uh, they also had said. With regard to basic wage increases, that they wanted those wage increases to "quote unquote" address inflation, Uh, and yet what they ended up agreeing to was uh, simply five percent in the first year of the contract, four percent, and three point five in the second and third year, and you know that uh, we had back to back seven and six point five percent inflation. You you one would have imagined that they would have wanted to catch up on that, and. Meanwhile, you know we're running at five percent now, and so they're going to be is- losing money
1: next year and the year after,
2: right? Right, or certainly not anywhere above, you know, anything. They won't keep pace with inflation.
1: inflation.
2: That's right. That's right. Whereas in the past, when they would get typically two and a half and three percent increases per year, inflation was running at one to one point five percent, so they were about a point and a half above inflation. Now they're not.
1: Now you say. One thing to keep in mind here when we talk about these base rates and wages and benefits and all this stuff. Well, those are the base rates and almost no directors work at scale. That's not as true as much for writers, of course. Uh, Still, there's a fair amount that work for scale, but it's really not true for actors. Many actors, if they're working at all. Are working for scale, so they really care what those minimums are. You suggest that perhaps it does; it's not as big a sticking point for directors because very few of them work at scale. But isn't it true that, like with a minimum wage, doesn't a higher floor benefit everyone? Because if you're raising the minimum, then you got to raise it for the people above them, or they feel like they haven't gained anything.
2: Well, I think when somebody, you know, has a particular uh, quote, a particular fee that they're typically paid. That the likelihood that that's, you know, it, and unless it's just a little bit above scale, or is measured in terms of scale, like twice scale, for example, um, th- there there really is something of a decoupling. I mean, between what the scale is versus what you know, a feature director or a an in demand television director gets. The the people affected really are more junior television directors who might work at scale, and I we don't have statistics on how many do. And then the below the line members of the DGA, the assistant directors and UPMs, uh, who are more likely to work at scale, but they're not the power source within the DGA. And I think that the guild's willingness to compromise on this shows that their priorities were focused more on on residuals, you know. And we should say. Uh, they had, um, uh, you know, they have some language uh, regarding AI. It's not clear exactly how uh, forceful that language is. We don't know the details again. The they AI cannot not perform. A
1: you can't perform the duties of directors. So we right. can't say, Alexa, direct an episode of Dancing with the Stars. That's By not the way, loud. I
0: apologize
2: for everybody's <laughs> Alexas that just went off. <laughs> y- including probably mine. If it, uh, if it yaps at us, we'll know why.
1: Well, if it directs an episode of Dancing with the Stars, make sure you get a residual.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that is certainly going to be on the agenda there's no doubt about
1: that so that so that means if you say that directors the powers with the directors making bigger bucks that means when we look at writers and especially actors they are not going to see a, an offer of 3.5 uh, percent uh which doesn't even keep pace with inflation in the third year and say let's sign on the dotted line that is not going to cut it for them
2: i i don't think so I mean, when i'm hearing from sources close to SAG-AFTRA, you know, uh, certainly reflects that, and the public statement from SAG-AFTRA is, um, you know, we have never depended on another union's negotiations to set our, you know, to set our demands, and we are not bound by what other unions agreed to. I mean, they're they're sending a very strong and specific signal on exactly that. We certainly didn't get any
1: transparency. Everybody said, we want to know what's happening on the streaming. What's happening? How big is my hit on HBO Max or Max? How big is my hit on Netflix and Paramount Plus and Peacock? And they gained nothing as far as we know in terms of transparency on them knowing what the numbers are. It's very hard to negotiate if the other side doesn't tell you how much your movie made at the box office. Or in this case, how many people actually watched it on their streaming service.
2: Well, I'll, I'll push back slightly. The the DGA claims that they did get uh, some additional transparency regarding residuals, but that's all they said. There's no specifics on uh, on what they say they got, and so uh, you know, coupled with the fact that there's no success metric uh, for for streaming residuals, as we talked about, uh, I I don't know how transparent or translucent or opaque, their transparency may be. Would that matter more for writers, though? Because we're talking about
0: showrunners who need to know, you know what, I I worked on this show. Was it successful? I have no idea how many people, you know, watch this. And should I continue working on such ideas? Or should I move on to a different idea? Uh, Or demand more
1: the next time.
0: Or demand more the next time because, of course, I'm a writer and I, I I'm the person that helps create these shows. Do I keep creating these kinds of shows, or do does nobody watch them? And I should create something else. One way to know is, hey, your show got canceled after two seasons. Well, maybe work on something else. But when you're in your fourth season, you kind of have to wonder how big a hit is this.
2: Yeah, but the you know the feature directors wonder the same thing, um, and um, feature and television directors. Uh, can make use of um of you know of transparency to negotiate more aggressively for higher for higher upfront fees for back ends and the guilds for residuals. So it it, it affects all the unions, I would say. are uh, although they just, right they, maybe in different ways to some extent.
1: They just love to hide numbers. You try and find out back in the day when DVD and Blu-ray was grossing more than the box office, they were making more money from renting and selling DVDs and Blu-rays than they were at the world, at the box office. And trying to find out those figures of exactly how much they grossed, forget it. You you could not find it for the life of you. Once every six months or a year, they would say, oh, that sold a million copies when they wanted to trumpet something. Uh, on television, trying to find out how much money shows are making overseas, uh like The Blacklist and Law & Orders and all these shows and their and their franchises that get redone all over the world, they mention vaguely that, yeah, there's good money being made overseas, but you never see hard numbers about them at all. And now here we've got streaming. It's the perfect black box. There's no information coming out of it at all because they're the only ones looking at it. There aren't people overseas buying these shows that might tell you how much they had to pay for your TV show or your sitcom. In this case, it's just uh, completely hidden away from everyone.
2: Well, that's exactly right. I mean, it's a it's a it's a black hole, and you know, very little data escapes uh, from that.
1: Well, some good things came out of this. We found out that. Uh Uh, There's better terms for variety and reality shows made for streamers, better residuals, and now assistant directors and stage managers working on nonfiction content like variety and reality for streamers. They will share in residuals. Uh, There's some coverage for scripted projects made for AVOD, ad-supported video on demand like Tubi and Roku and Freebie. There's a lot of activity coming there, so there's just going to be more and more shows made for them, so that's important. Uh, They got... Prep, soft prep, something I never heard of. Directors do work on movies before they officially begin their preparation. It's called soft prep. They're finally getting paid for that. And assistant directors, this was interesting. They say the day has been shortened by one hour for assistant directors. After that hour, I guess they get overtime or they can't work anymore or whatever. They say that was unprecedented. And in episodic television for paid TV and streamers, they gained an additional guaranteed shoot day for one-hour programs, it's the first added day for a shoot in more than forty years. I also wonder how they define a one-hour program because lots of shows are like fifty-two minutes, uh, an hour and seven minutes. You know, there's no set time limit for shows. Maybe they just come to an agreement that this show, however long it actually runs, is in fact a one-hour show.
2: Yeah, there's a range of times that counts as a one hour, but um, you know, your 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 list of additional deal points is exactly right and. And so we do have to acknowledge that the DGA uh, achieved, you know, quite a range of uh, of uh, you know of deal points in a in a very short period of time in three weeks of negotiation. Um, you know, again, whether that makes this deal historic is a uh, uh, a different uh, a different question.
1: But even when you get the details as they come out. Your assumption, from what you understand right now, this is probably not going to be a historic deal. You can't have this low level of a rate of inflation increase. You can't have uh, what they gained and their trumpeting lets you know, yeah, this probably wasn't a historic deal. I'll wait to see the details, but I doubt something in there will shock you so much. You go, wow, they did much better than I thought, because they're going to give you the best face forward right now.
2: Well, that's right. That's right. And, um, you know, the jury... Of course, is out until you know uh, uh, a final sort of judgment, as it were, until we until we see uh, the details. You know, the at the end of the day, the each guild has a responsibility to negotiate on behalf of its own members, uh, not on behalf of the other guilds. And so, you know, that there's a fiduciary duty there. They don't negotiate jointly, um, and are you know unlikely to in the near future and so um, if leadership felt that this was the you know the right deal for the d g a and and the best approach to take and the best deal achievable and a better approach than not having a deal and potentially striking uh you know that's within their purview um you know and the the you know the i've i've gotten. Response from some SAG-AFTRA members who were disappointed, but the reality is that if SAG-AFTRA does strike, the combination of writers and actors uh, out on strike will, you know, will shut down the industry. There's nothing to direct if you don't have actors. There's very little for directors to do, other than
1: there's a lot of shutdown already, isn't there? The the the, the producers have admitted that the writers have been very effective at shutting down certainly on location shooting in Los Angeles, that there's very little happening right now.
2: Yeah, it's down apparently by about two thirds compared to, uh, you know, several. Well, the writers have these
1: strike
0: teams like they go out and they say, "Okay, call time for this show is uh, at 4 p. 4 a.m. over at Raleigh Studios. And they all go and march in front of Raleigh Studios. And then, of course, the teamsters say we can't cross that picket line. And then production is shut down for the day.
1: Right. And so, and so you say, look, you made a great comparison. We're, we're talking about what you put out via puck. Your, uh, your newsletter analysis, your online articles at puck.com, and you say this great comparison would not be 2007-2008 when the writers struck and then the actors, there was sort of sort of weird thing going on. A good comparison is 1960. That's when two guilds went on strike and achieved historic gains, including a pension and health plan, as you point out, and getting residuals for the first time for when movies were rerun on TV. So you think these actors and writers go on strike— uh, they're looking to make historic gains and the p- one, two punch of both of them doing that could make it happen.
2: Well, that's right. I mean, 1960, um, the smaller studios had already agreed to uh, to, to pay uh, residuals when movies ran on TV, but the major studios had not. It was a 12-year fight. Uh, they achieved that as a result of the dual strike. They achieved a pension plan. They also achieved a health plan. And that became pattern for the directors and for the uh, IATSE crew members, you know, as well. So it was an industry-wide victory as a result of the writers and actors uh, going out concurrently. That, to me, was a you know was a historic uh, accomplishment. Uh, As I say, it had been you know know, fight for a dozen years over the concept of uh, of paying residuals, and it really cemented in the concept of residuals that you know it, it obviously took some sub- further strikes down the line uh, as recently as 07-08, um to continue to reinforce that when product is reused or rerun the residuals are due regardless of what the new technology is whether it's whether it's television whether it's cable TV whether it's premium cable like HBO whether it's home video DVD blu-ray VHS back in the day. Um, whether it's foreign markets, um, the '88 strike was uh, particularly about that, uh, or whether it's the internet. Um, so the the fight has to get you know has gotten fought again and again over residuals. And this year, it's it's the the, the writer's strike is more about initial compensation and mini rooms and the, and and so forth as we we're talking about. But once again, the common thread is technology, technological change. Whether it's streaming, whether it's AI, whether it's self-tapes in the case of the actors, um, you know these are multiple technolo- pieces of technological change that are hitting the industry all at once uh, and are creating kind of a total storm of, uh, of uh, labor dismay.
0: Strike, strike, strike. Do you think this yeah. time with the writers and possibly the actors striking, if both of them strike in 1960, they got all of these… Uh, These advances uh do you think that maybe uh they'll get you know some residuals and some upfront pay bumps but they could also get some some transparency from the streamers
2: transparency is going to be very hard um we we will have to see what the dja achieved in transparency uh since we we don't have any detail on that other than the statement that they've achieved some transparency in residuals reporting whatever whatever exactly that means um but you know true transparency and a success metric uh for residuals are going to be uh resisted very vociferously by the uh, by the companies and uh it's uh it'll be a hard get honestly
0: and where do you have you heard anything uh, as to where those negotiations stand, or they're just not even bothering? They're not talking.
2: Well, the the, the writers are picketing, the directors are done talking, and SAG-AFTRA begins on Wednesday. So right now, uh, no one is uh, no one is talking. But uh, uh, I I do believe that SAG-AFTRA is going to be pushing for uh, more achievements and residuals than what the uh, the DJA got. And one thing we don't know, also about the DGA deal, is whether there's a uh, uh, whether any of the provisions or all of them even have a uh, favored nations reopener. In other words, if uh, either of the other two guilds got something better, would the DGA deal automatically reopen, uh, and the DGA get the uh, the better terms? Did it, they have that last time?
1: Two thousand seven, two thousand. I mean, two thousand. Yeah, two thousand seven.
2: Well, the TGA went first last time, so there was no, uh, wasn't a need for but, that.
1: No, but then when the writers go in, if they get a deal that's better, that's when the most favored nation clause would kick in.
2: Yeah, uh, you, no, you that's true. F- um, but the, it, it, there wasn't any any thought that the writers were going to get anything better, so I, I don't think that there was a, 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 by and large, a favored nations reopener. But but here, given that you that the other two unions are are very public about you know negotiating on their own behalfs and wanting better than what the DGA has uh achieved in certain respects um it's uh it's a it's an open question to me as to whether I wouldn't be surprised if they had a provision like that
0: well Jonathan it's always great to speak with you and I have a feeling we're going to be speaking with you more and more over the the coming months because let's face it uh this is the year of labor strife and strikes in fact so thank you very much for taking the time to join us. We'll place links to all of your work in our show notes, but uh,
2: where can you be found on on the interwebs? Uh, two places, jhandle.com which is j h a n d e l.com and jhandle.news which is my Substack that people are welcome to uh, sign up for.
0: And of course you're on Twitter as well, which is actually where I found out the DGA strike was, I get a, a notification every time you, you post. And so I, I got it immediately and went,
2: Whoa, and it, it was like late Saturday. Yep. Uh, it was very it late. Was. I, I, uh, I scooped the, uh, the trades on that one. It was, uh, it was very, it was very fun. And, uh, I should say, we scooped the trades this, uh, Puck. Uh, it was collaborative with my editor, Matt Bellamy and, um, uh, and of course people can find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks as always.
1: Well, that was great. A Jonathan Handel to stop by I had a hundred other questions, but you know, there's just so much to talk about, but you know, with him breaking that story, beating the trades, that was very fun. That's, that's kind of a big deal. I think for puck, you know, getting those little gains on other, on other outlets, really people remember that. And they've had very good coverage on different stuff. We'll be talking about a puck story on inside baseball.
0: And in fact, that, that uh, Atlantic story by, mm-hmm. by Tim Alberta, um, well, you know, Puck was mentioned in that too, because, uh, you know, they, they covered Chris Licht uh, incessantly, <laughs> one might say, <laughs> on that particular outlet. Uh, but they always have some really good news uh, or really good uh, scoops. So uh, Puck.news, I think it is. No, but, no, you it's know Jonathan
1: we'll- Handel.news. Uh, oh, Okay. Well,
0: you know what? We'll place links to all of it in our show notes. But it is time for Big Deal or Big Whoop, our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Our first story. I will be singing it, actually, uh, but without any music because the David Byrne musical about Imelda and Fernando Marcus or Ferdinand, not Fernando, uh, that musical is coming to Broadway. People may argue whether the show celebrates or excoriates the brutal dictator from the Philippines and his shoe-loving wife. People may also argue over whether it's a Broadway debut or, or or, you know, a revival since it's been around for a while. But right now people are arguing over the this musical's desire to not have any musicians. The show is set in a nightclub and from the start it was conceived karaoke style. It's inspired by what are called track acts, who sing to pre-recorded tracks, a practice especially popular in Asia and where, of course, music fans also embrace karaoke. The producers have asked for a waiver when usually a Broadway show would be required to hire 19 musicians from its first conception. 17 years ago, this musical Here Lies Love has always been performed to pre-recorded tracks, both at the public theater where it was a long running hit
1: and then all over the world. But will the show get a waiver? And is this a big deal or a big whoop? Well, it's a big whoop unless they don't get a waiver. Uh, It's going to have an all Filipino cast, certainly the first time that has happened on Broadway. It's done in an immersive style because you're in a nightclub, so you sort of can stand on balconies looking down or the actors move around you. That's how it was done at the public. Uh, It's very exciting to be done on Broadway. I assume that means a lower capacity I'm pretty sure it does, uh, but I can't swear to that. But this is how the show was conceived. They're not trying to do a a workaround, you know, not trying to cheat anybody. Um, For this show, it makes perfect sense that they would not have an orchestra. And I don't think They should punish them or suddenly dramatically increase the cost of this bold roll of the dice by saying, no, you have to have an orchestra when the entire idea of the show is based around the ideas of pre-recorded tracks. It's not a cheat. It's not a scam. It's not a trick. Uh, It's the way the show was conceived. It makes perfect sense. What was that Gwyneth Paltrow movie where they went around the country doing karaoke? Remember that movie? She had a little minor hit, a top 40 hit. Oh, God. Yeah, I know. Like if they made that into a Broadway musical, that too would be perfectly fine as a karaoke musical because that's what it is. So nobody else is going to try to steal this and make, oh, I don't have to have musicians either. I want shows to have full orchestras. I love full orchestras. This show deserves to get that waiver.
0: Well, and if you look at it, you have, uh, there was just a story on NPR this week about how uh, Camelot on Broadway has yeah. 26 musicians, which is unheard of,
1: not, Sweeney un, not, Todd, un, not unheard of now.
0: Well, Sweeney Todd has 20 musicians mm-hmm. and some like it hot has 17 to, to put that in some perspective, Hamilton had 10 musicians and that's kind of what they're going with these days. Uh, so, and that's kind of a remar- remarkable when you think about it, 10, 10 musicians. Yeah. It sounded like way more. I'll be honest. I I agree with you. I thought I thought when I actually. I
1: I thought that they must have gotten a waiver because that would be less than the minimum. The movie is uh, Duets with Huey Lewis and Gwyneth Paltrow and Paul Giamatti, directed by her dad, Bruce Paltrow. And again, if they turn that into a Broadway musical, give them a waiver as well. And by the way, it is not Puck.com. It's Puck.news. You're quite right. Puck.com is a company that makes liquid transfer equipment. (laughs) So if you need to get a liquid from here to there, they've got used equipment and products and all sort of stuff. They're great but they are definitely not puck, Puck.News. <laughs> so, and I'm going,
0: to, I'm going to correct myself in real time here. Camelot does not have 26 musicians. It has
1: 30. Right, right. Yeah, it's a, that's Lincoln Center for you. They're known for having a full, lush orchestra and the great sound of classic Broadway. Uh, there you go. Well, I had a question on Big Deal, Big Whoop that I didn't quite arrange. It's a, two quick things about Khan. First of all, in the CJ newsletter, what's it called? The Marquee. The Marquee. Where can they subscribe to it? At
0: celluloidjunkie.com. Uh, you go to the newsletter section and you can just subscribe right there. Right. And, and, and we will not spam you. It only comes out once a week. And it's, if we're lucky, we can get it.
1: <laughs> 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 and <laughs> in your newsletter, you mentioned that Netflix only bought North American rights for the Todd Hayes film May, December out of Correct. caution. Correct. Well, I didn't read that. I didn't hear that. So I was interested about it because I assumed they just didn't want to pay for worldwide. I assumed or other terrorists were pre-bought. And so they didn't want to pay a premium to buy out everybody else as we've seen happening in the last few years. It's been very annoying. People help get a movie made by with pre-buys. And then when they get a big offer from Netflix or Apple, they're like, yeah, never mind. Goodbye. Here's your money. You know, they give them a payout of a minor amount. So like you help them make the movie and then they walk away from you when they get a chance to get, you know, they've got a hot property and some big player wants it. So in this case, why were they cautious about it? What, what were they? They paid a lot of money.
0: Well, they paid a lot of money, but which I, I would have thought would have been a worldwide deal. But I do know <laughs> that the, the producers uh, were very strict. They went into Cannes without a deal. And normally uh, a film, apparently they showed it to several different uh, buyers, including Netflix and the they the producer said, yeah, we want more. And all of the buyers said, yeah, we're not paying that. We're not going to the, the, the offers are way too low. We're going to take our chances. We're going to go to Cannes. We're going to screen. We're going to get great reviews and then, you know, you'll pay us what we're asking for. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, it has since sold to several foreign territories, including France and several European territories. So it's not that it was pre bought. It said the producers took a gamble and were holding out for more. And Netflix was like, yeah, we're willing to overpay for North America but we're not going to overpay for, you know,
2: all so, so it drivers.
1: wasn't that Netflix was cautious. It was that the producers behind the film were feeling very bold and confident in the movie that they had. Absolutely. Okay. And the other question is before con, we talked about how the WJ is on strike. Would people be able to talk and promote their movies? Would there be picket signs? Would Scorsese get in trouble? If he talked about the writing of his movie killers of the flower moon, uh, I don't think there was a word was mentioned about that. Once con began.
0: Well, there was some mention of the writer strike in certain press conferences. But you're right. You had Wes Anderson there. You had Martin Scorsese there and other writers. And they're not supposed to be promoting their movie in any way, shape or form.
1: And, I guess and they get pass. Everyone just looked the other way.
0: Yeah, I, I meant to ask Jonathan Handel about this because I wanted to know... You know and we kind of did ask him about this before can i don't know why he's not why they're they're able to promote it at a kind of a one-off in can mm-hmm. uh maybe it's because it's not a traditional promotional campaign they're not going out beating the drums at right. a
1: release yeah exactly i think it might be some waiver for a particular film festival for movies i don't know It'd be interesting to find out also be find out are you watching the french open do you care
0: I am not watching the French Open because it's on at three in the morning my time. I'm kidding, of course. I know that you can you know, delay it and you can watch it. Uh, actually, some of it is on while I'm awake. But uh, all eyes right now in tennis are on the French Open, the second major of the Grand Slam. And all eyes of the players are on their social media feeds. In a story on ESPN, major players like Francis. Oh, no. T.F.O. I- TFO. I meant to look up how to pronounce it. Francis TFO. Uh, they say they receive death threats after losing a match. Are you serious? Every single time they, this happens. Racist, hate-filled comments stalk Sloan Stevens, win or lose. But it's always worse when she loses. Win a match and the good can overwhelm the bad, but turning on your phone after a match is an exhausting, toxic moment. Peyton Stearns, a 21-year-old American, describes it this way. You keep seeing these notifications. Boom, 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 boom. You have to go through it. You report, you block. It's a hassle and it drains you mentally. The French Open is trying to help. It's offering every player access to Bodyguard. Now, that's a system which automatically blocks any social media posts from a player's feed. When it spots anything toxic, like a violent or racist word or phrase or emoji, players say, hey, it's a start. So is maybe just not checking Twitter, but, you know, <laughs> it's this a big deal or a big whoop.
1: Well, they are responsible for that. It's a big deal because players are expected to promote themselves. They are expected to do you know, more personal and fun you are. And, oh, here I am on the court two seconds after the match. The more follows you're going to get, the more likes you're going to get, the more excitement you're going to get around your social media feed. And young people are just used to posting and promoting themselves all the time. that They don't think twice about it. Uh, but I, in a way, I agree with you. First of all, I don't know why the French Open is doing this rather than, say, the WTA. And the men's tour as well. It should be done a year round, not just for a French open. Uh, you know. So, so like, uh, uh, you know, yeah. why is this one tournament doing? That seems weird. Uh, top players like Naomi Osaka have talked about their mental health struggles. This is important. If you are a top, top player, like Francis Tiafoe, like Sperling says, I don't care what benefit there is from being chatty and whatever you like doing. You should not be handling your social media feed. Let somebody else do it. You have your private text coming from your family and friends. Everything else on social media should be handled by a pay- Aid employee. So you never see it. They post for you. They work with you. They do it. You should not be doing that. If you can afford to do it, do not do it. Get away from that stuff because it is poisonous. And you don't want to have to deal with it.
0: Right, and certainly, I mean, so one of the benefits—the more social media followers you have when you go to get endorsements, they know course, that yeah. you know. So that's that's one of the reasons you even
1: stay on social media. That's that's the big reason. That's it. Yeah, <laughs> the more yeah, popular, really the more money you get. Then a lot of people make more money from their endorsements than they do from their money, you know, their earnings. Even the top players,
0: yeah, especially the top uh,
1: players. Yeah, it's
0: kind of uh, an inside uh, story there. Do it. Think? Yeah, well, it's time for Inside Baseball, where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and, more importantly, how they affect
1: you. And here's how this affects you guys. This is in your wheelhouse, so I'm going to set it up. Tom Cruise is facing another impossible mission. First, he saved Hollywood with Top Gun Maverick. Now, he wants to save his new Mission Impossible movie from the IMAX onslaught of director Christopher Nolan. It's all detailed in a story by Matthew Baloney of the website Puck, who worked with Jonathan Handel on breaking the news about the DGA settlement, or the DGA deal, I should say. Well, here's the deal with this. Christopher Nolan booked his new film Oppenheimer first, way, way in advance. The prestige drama was shot entirely with IMAX cameras. It's... Christopher Nolan is practically a a unpaid promotional sponsor for IMAX and the movie Oppenheimer snagged all the IMAX screens for three weeks, starting with its July 21st debut. Now, because of COVID delays and such, Tom Cruise had Mission Impossible 17 part one and delay, delay, delay. He's finally trying to position it this year and he's picked July 12th, long after Christopher Nolan picked July 21st. And Tom's like well, what do you mean? Why can't I have all the IMAX screens? What do you mean I have to give them up after nine days? That's unreal. Don't you know who I am? (laughs) And why doesn't he move it up earlier? Well, Indiana Jones is opening on June 30th. It is a very crowded summer. So now Tom Cruise, since he simply cannot win the IMAX fight, he is fighting in the area of PLF, premium large format screens. He's grumbling every step of the way, but he knows if he wants this movie to be on top, he needs to have those premium formats so people up, charge for the pleasure of seeing the new Mission Impossible movie. And then three weeks after Nolan's movie is done, it'll probably be played out on IMAX screens by and large. He'll probably be able to get back some Mission Impossible screens, except there will be more new movies opening up every week. It's a very crowded summer. So this seems like, A, of course, he programmed too late. It's sorry. There's nothing you can do about it. They already committed to someone else. But this really is a sign of how much money is being made on premium format screens, isn't it?
0: It absolutely is. You, you kind of summarized the story perfectly. Uh, and it really is, uh, you know, when I was in Cannes, I met with Rich Gelfond. Uh, he met with the, some journalists. And one of the first things he asked me, uh, which I thought was kind of odd, he said, how do you think, uh, how do you think Oppenheimer's going to do in July? And I was like, why are you at, like, uh, aren't you the CEO of IMAX? Shouldn't you? Know? It's, it's going to do great. It's, I said, I think it's going to do well. And he said he tried to convince uh, that, you know, Christopher Nolan, who he, you know, he's friendly with for obvious reasons, uh, to not open in July, but he just won't move. No, he no, tried that's, and, and right. And then it's
1: great counter-programming.
0: Universal tried to uh, convince Nolan not to open in July because, of course, Warner Brothers is opening Barbie. That same's Weekend, and a lot of people are thinking, "Hey, that Barbie movie is going to over-index. It is tracking off the charts right now."
1: No, it's and not. It's only stra- with men. I just read online on the. Oh traits. yeah, no,
0: with men, yeah, no. But I mean, with with teenagers, it's 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 tracking quite high. And so, I the think it looks great. I thought
1: the trailer was terrific, but I saw, I saw that the awareness was low. It's way low, just like Oppenheimer, that people aren't aware it's coming out. I thought I would think it would be over through the roof. I was surprised. I thought this movie, every trailer they release, is more fun than the last. It looks like a total winner. It looks like well, a very, some, very some... smart franchise.
0: Well, you know, Warner Brothers is saying, Hey, you
1: you know what? Go
0: talk to uh go talk to Universal. We're not moving. You they know, don't need we, to
1: move. They're perfectly counter programmed. There's nothing better uh, than I, I Oppenheimer and Barbie opening the same weekend. I agree
0: with that. I, I think that uh It is counter-programming. Of course, you also have Mission Impossible. So uh, if you recall, a couple things. One, in a previous marquee newsletter, I talked about this. We talked about how how crowded it was and that somebody was going to get hurt. So far, it looks like it's The Little Mermaid.
1: (laughs) So when Fast X is underperforming, but I think those are the movies. I don't think it's the fact that it's a crowded summer because it is a crowded summer, but no more crowded than usual. We wish they released more movies in January, February, March. They weren't ready. And in August and September, yes, we wish they would space out their movies more, but this is not a bizarrely crowded summer in terms of historic Hollywood, is it?
0: No, uh, this used to be called, uh, it's a special word, summer, actually. The summer (laughs) blockbuster season. Um, But uh, yeah, it is definitely, there's like one new movie every week or every two weeks, so nobody gets a second weekend. But what I will say is last year, uh, Top Gun Maverick opened. Then two weeks later, it had to come off of IMAX screens because Jurassic Park showed up. It played and was promised two weeks. IMAX played the film for two weeks, and then afterwards. Now, prior to Jurassic Park World Dominion, whatever it was called, uh, it it uh, it made forty. Uh, Top Gun Maverick made forty-five million dollars on IMAX screens. It came back two weeks later, played an additional. Uh, I think, three or four or five weeks, and it made $110 million total. Well, that's because so oh, there was
1: not, there was nothing else. Correct. Right, that's correct. not going to happen this time because there's more movies coming out every week.
0: Yes, I, I would agree with that. I think, though, that you could, after two weeks, decide, you know what, hey, let's play Oppenheimer in the morning, Mission Impossible in the evening, and then flip it the next day, and then, you know, play both of them, and then that way people who didn't get a chance to see it in the first two weeks can go and see either film on IMAX. And by the way, there are private label premium large format screens now, which is what Tom Cruise is out there trying to scoop up. He's showing the film. He and Paramount are showing the film to everyone that they can exhibitor-wise to get all the movie theaters on board to say, you know what? We can't put you on IMAX because we don't necessarily control that. And IMAX promised that to Christopher Nolan three weeks clean. But you know what? We have our own version of, you know, our premium large format. So we'll put you in there. And that's what, he's trying to, that's what he's really trying to do. Yes, exactly. And he seems to be upset at Paramount, to which I would say- It's not uh, their Chris, fault. <laughs> Chris Aronson was uh, on our uh, summit a couple weeks ago uh, in May. I think May 9th is when he was on. And, and he basically, uh, no, it was uh, May 19th, actually. And he said that uh, one thing, he called it responsible dating. That you should be responsible about when you're dating your films. And there are certain studios that aren't doing that. And he was was right in some aspects. Some of these movies will get hurt, not because they're bad necessarily, but because they they will be drowned out by, you know, a Wes Anderson film in the middle of the summer. I mean, maybe nobody's
1: going to go see that. All right. Well, I won't be drowned out. Give me 90 seconds to talk about two people who have died this week. Songwriter Cynthia Weil or Vile died at age 82. She's the Grammy-winning legendary songwriter. She and her husband Barry Mann were mainstays of the Brill Building. In fact, if you saw the Broadway musical Beautiful about Carole King, also from the Brill Building, Cynthia Weil and her husband Barry Mann were part of the show. They were on Broadway in a musical. The, I mean their characters were. They also wrote the hit on Broadway, and they're in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You've lost that love and feeling. We got to get out of this place. Dolly Parton's Here You Come Again. He Shows Shy for the Pointer Series. Half of the songs you know from the 50s and 60s come from Cynthia Vile. And then Robin Wagner, the Tony winning set designer, died at 89. He did. 50 years on Broadway, more than 50 plays and musicals. He won three Tonys. It stretched a career from 61 to 2012. So many great shows. Uh, I think he got 10 nominations and three wins at least. His big break was Hair. He went on to Jesus Christ Superstar, Angels in America, Crazy for You. But it's all typified by two shows. He did the set design for A Chorus Line, which famously included a white line on the floor and a mirrored back wall. I was going to say, he did the set design, he was done in a day. That simplicity (laughs) was genius. They worked through all sorts of ideas. That was genius and helped it become the biggest hit in Broadway history at the time. And it was very cheap to tour contrast that with his innovations on automated sets for shows like on the 20th century and peaking with dream the sets moved in and out with cinematic fluidity and they really revolutionized broadway dream did not win set design and a chorus line wasn't even nominated but of course robin wagner had the last laugh with a great great career
0: well you know they say the neon lights are bright on broadway and they say there's always magic in the air they do and it's time to
1: say goodbye.
0: Oh, oh, okay. I was, I was going to sing the rest of the song. If oh, you well, really just right want to say goodbye. Uh, no, uh, I'm, uh, I've got the voice for radio and uh, face to match. And uh, yeah, you don't want to hear me sing. Uh, you know what? But you got you a do voice for mime,
1: I think is what you want. A
0: voice for mime. Yes, I will be stealing that joke. Thank you very much.
1: Every time um, I do my show, my brother says, uh, uh, break a larynx. You know, he doesn't know what to say. <laughs>
0: Well, you know what, Uh, tell us what you think of us. You can write to us dirt at showbizsandbox.com. You can call us 888-567-SAND, that's 888-567-7263, where you can leave us a voicemail. You can follow us on Twitter at showbizsandbox is our handle, or you can like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash showbizsandbox is where you can like our page. And you know what? You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Microsoft Marketplace, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere they give podcasts away for free. You can rate and review us. and Please do. It helps us out when you rate and review us, especially in all those other countries. Uh, I, I noticed that, you know, when I was in France, I got the French reviews. They were in French, and I couldn't necessarily translate them entirely, but uh, hey, we had reviews in French. That was kind of cool. Really? Now, links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode, links to those ways to subscribe to us, ways to contact us, that is on our website, showbizsandbox.com. That's where you'll find links to Jonathan Handel's work, and I'd like to thank him for joining us. Uh, and you know what? I'd like to thank MGMT. That's the music that you hear at the beginning and end of each episode. They are the popular indie rock group who can be found on their own website. Who is MGMT.com? Now, Michael, Gilt is a website, and every week it's
1: something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? This week it's AngerManagement.com. I do even Sperling, know what that means. Sperling, which should know what that means, uh, but it's uh, actually the domain is available from this company that wants you to lease your website. For just $1,200 a year, for the first year, you can get AngerManagement.com. And they explain to you why a premium domain is really a great idea. That's right. Build up a name brand and a website that somebody else actually owns. So but for year 4 you're paying $2,000. Oh, my God. It's $1,100 a month. Oh, my God. It's not even a year. I thought it was a year. Oh, my God. If you rent AngerManagement.com for $1,100 a month, I have a business deal I wanted to talk to you about (laughs) because you are dumb. (laughs) there's a bridge in Brooklyn wow (laughs) wow $1,100 a month oh my god come up with a different name that's my advice that's making me very angry (laughs) (laughs) well if you can't find
0: any of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry on that website why not head on over to michaelgiltz.com where all of his work can be found some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com until next week play nice